Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Hello, everyone. It's good to see everybody. Um, I know there's a lot of visitors here tonight. And I want to say welcome. It's good to have you here. Uh, we've got folks from Florida who came in. That's always really exciting. Um, I, I always have a hard time believing that they're willing to sacrifice so much to be with us. That's, that's like a really big deal. And so I want to, I want to say thank you for doing that. It's good to, ha- to have you here. Um, and then, of course, we've got Living Faith Lee Summit with us here tonight. So... Um, I'm about to preach the most dangerous message uh, that I've ever preached. Okay. This is, you no, know, this is the title. How to Destroy a Church is the title of tonight's sermon. And uh, it's, a, it's, a genuine, it's a genuine title. I'm, I'm, I'm not really being tongue-in-cheek. We're actually going to talk tonight about how to, dis- how to destroy a church. Um, and so, let's, uh, let's begin like this, I guess. Uh, no doubt, I'm, I'm fluctuating in the volume here. Are you, got, you got me there, bud? Okay. All right, dialing it in. Uh, so, no doubt, in 2021, Satan has had great success as it concerns sifting local churches all, all over the world. Um, you know, may, maybe you're not fully aware that maybe this is just pastor talk, but, uh, but among leaders and churches, there's a conversation going on about this very issue, especially right now. So the, the COVID pandemic alone has had an incredible impact on churches over the last year. In the U.S. alone, it's been estimated that as many as 10,000 churches closed their doors for the very last time in 2020. 10,000 churches. According to Thomas Rayner and the Church Answers Organization, 15% of church leaders said that their churches were at serious risk of closure. Not only that, but it has become clearer than ever that we live in a post-Christian society. For those of you who are on college campuses right now, um, you observe this daily, firsthand. Uh, the hostility in academic institutions against the gospel, focused antagonism against the church in government policies. Right now, there's a policy called the Equality Act that they're hoping to get passed, that if it does pass, will have major implications on how the church does, uh, does business from day to day. And so they're actively legislating against the gospel even right now. Satan has reminded us in 2021 that he is the God of this world. That he's got a hold of of people's hearts. He's got a hold of people's minds. That he's more in control than we ever even imagined. Have you noticed that? But listen to me. Long before churches in America ever faced these contemporary obstacles, 
Churches have long suffered loss at their own hands. So the question for tonight is, how do you destroy a church? And this is, this is not a question that we need to ask Satan or his demons. This isn't a question for the devil. It's not a question for the occultists or the heretics. It's not a question for the people in government or power. No, the experts in bringing down churches have always been Christians. How to destroy a church? That's a question we should be asking ourselves. Now certainly, Satan provides plenty of temptation. But ultimately, Christians themselves answer for the downfall of every individual church. Each individual body of believers is responsible for the health of their church. They alone determine whether or not they will be destroyed or deployed. They determine that. We determine that. Every single one of us. So the question for us tonight really is how to take down Midtown Baptist Temple. How to take down Living Faith Lee Summit. How do we do it? Living Faith Tampa. How do we put an end to what God has been doing? How do we do that? How do you expedite the church's failure? How would a person or a group of people contribute to failure? The very first thing we need to do is look at a principle that we find in Scripture that reveals the fact that Kaya and the young adult ministries in our churches are specifically pivotal to either the downfall or the success of every one of our churches. As much as Kaya is a major contributor to the excitement in our church, the zeal, the expression, and the culture of our body, as much influence as we have, I mean, we make up approximately one-third of our church. And, and if you ask the, 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 the adults and the, and the older folks in our church, they're looking to us for energy and excitement, and they see that we have an influence and an, influence and an impact in that way. But as much as that's true, our young adult ministries also play the most integral part in determining whether or not our churches fail, whether or not the mission fizzles out and dies, whether or not we will actually plant churches. I mean, we could pat ourselves on the back about Living Faith Tampa and Living Faith Lee Summit and what's happening there, and we, sh we should be really excited about that. But that's certainly not the end. We certainly haven't achieved all the things that we want to achieve in ministry and life. No, it's the young adult ministries that actually determine whether or not our churches will exist 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And it all begins with the principle that we ought to consider. I'm calling this principle the principle of disconnected generations. Okay? I just made that up. I, didn't... I looked for something on Google, but there wasn't anything. I just had to make it up. <laughs> but here's the key. <laughs> Did you say fancy? Someone said fancy. Yeah, I'm real fancy. They say that a lot about me, fancy. <laughs> so here's the principle. Churches die in the space between generations. That's where churches die. In the transitionary moment between one group of people and the next. And what I mean is the most dangerous time in the life of any church are those years between one generation's leadership 
and the next. That moment when the baton is being handed from one runner to the next, that is the moment when you run the greatest risk of losing the race. This is true in church, and it's, it's true in life as well. About 11 years ago, Eva and I moved uh, into the city. We bought a house in the city. And uh, at Gregory and Truce, there used to be this restaurant called the New York Delicatessen. Does anybody remember that restaurant? Like Brent is like, there's like two people that are old enough to have experienced the New York Delicatessen. But it was, it was like famous across the nation um, as one of the oldest Jewish bakeries and delicatessens in the United States. Um, it was well known in the Kansas City area as the best kosher deli and bakery. I went there once for lunch, one time. This is probably in like 2008 or 9 or something like that. And man, it was good. It's good. And so when Eve and I finally moved uh, into the city, we were really excited about living near it, right? We live at 73rd and Charlotte, and we're talking like, this is like Gre the Gregory and Troost area. You guys know where the YMCA is, right? It sits right in front of that. That's, that's where it used to be. But about the time we moved in, uh, we found out that the doors of the deli were closing. And, uh, you know, I, I found out later, so the, the, this place started in 1906, right? It's been around a while, right? But I found out later that, uh, that it was a multi-generational business. In other words, it had been in the family for quite some time. And uh, Jim, uh, Jim and Susie Holmark had wanted to hand off the business to their children but their children had no interest in taking it over. And so uh, after a, you know, a couple years, the place fell into disrepair. And uh, the, health, the, the, the health department came in. And uh, it was getting nasty and gross. No one was taking care of it. And then eventually it closed its doors. And, and I never got to partake of the, of the Reuben sandwich ever again. But similarly, a church, a church can be on fire, right? It can be successful at what it's doing. There can be a movement of God that's happening. And I would, I would say, like, okay, we, we just got back from the discipleship conference. And uh, talking to other pastors, when they talk about what's happening in our young adult ministries specifically, they're using the word movement. Now, I, I, I'm not super comfortable with that word, but I'm willing to admit and confess that I do see God moving, right? That God has been at work in our ministry, that we're seeing souls saved, that we're growing in terms of our disciples, that God is at work. And, and I, would, I would say that some might use the word movement of God. And that all can be there. Our church can be focused on all the right things. And yet that moment, that moment of transfer of knowledge and, tr and trust is being handed from one generation to the next. That that's the moment when you run the greatest risk of harming the integrity of what God is doing. Now, whenever this transfer takes place, there's a responsibility in both generations, both the preceding generation and the succeeding generation. And so, so the responsibility first lies with those people at Midtown Baptist Temple who were the pioneers of the work, men like Sam Miles, Right? Sam, men like uh, Chris Best or people like Deb Mulder, people who were there from the very beginning, who put their hands to the plow to make sure the church got planted at 40th and Walnut. 
And it's those people's responsibility to do everything they can to make sure that the baton gets handed off. We can see this exemplified in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Now Eli was the, the high priest in the temple at the time, right? And his sons were wicked. His children who were supposed to inherit the priesthood. These were wicked people, sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And he said unto them, "Why?" so he goes, Eli goes to his sons real, real late in his life, and he goes to them, he says, why do ye such, uh, such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is, not good, uh, it, it is no good report that I hear ye make the Lord's people to transgress. So even Eli realizes that, that what was supposed to be handed down, and the transfer was never made. There was a failure. But by the time he realized, it was way too late. And so, so the, the first generation of MBT has a responsibility to make sure that you understand what, what, what God wants us to do, what our identity is, who we are, what we believe. It's our responsibility to make sure that gets handed off. But there's also a responsibility for you. You know, in our churches, I believe that the elders have done a fantastic job building a, you know, what they refer to as a DNA. One that's bi biblical, a philosophy of ministry that's biblical, a culture that is focused on the mission, a strategy of ministry that's effective. But it's going to be our responsibility to receive that baton and carry it with the same integrity that they did. And that's not always a given. Judges chapter 2, verse 7 addresses this. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Hirez. I listened. Do you know you click the button? To listen to how something's pronounced. I listened to that like 10 times. I'm still not confident that I said that right. Timnatherez. In the Mount of Ephraim. On the, uh, on the north side of the hill Gash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They had no idea. The transfer didn't take place. In this instance, Joshua took the baton from Moses. You guys remember that story? He took the baton from Moses and he ran well. That generation immediately following Moses was in fact a better generation in many regards than the one that preceded it. They went from strength to strength, from Moses to Joshua, strength to strength. But over a very short period of time, shortly after Joshua and the elders passed away, the young generation came into leadership and they had no idea what the heck to do. And they screwed everything up. And you know, the damage in a church, it's not always immediate. The differences from one generation to the next may be small. They may be incremental. It may be a slow decay. But nonetheless, this is a dangerous possibility. Even for Midtown Baptist Temple. And so we're going to talk about five ways in which we could destroy what God is doing at Midtown Baptist Temple. 
that Caius specifically could fail to do the very thing that they've been called up to do. And, and, and what I'm saying tonight, this goes for every, gr- every group of young adults in all of our churches. This is a big deal. More is being handed off. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, I've, I've, I, you know, I've lost my, I'm old enough now where I've, I've lost most of my grandparents. I have a grandmother that's still alive. And when you see generations pass, it's not until that moment that you begin to consider all, the, all of what they actually are, right? Until they're gone, you don't fully understand what it is that they've done for you. What my grandparents have done for me, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Until it's gone, you don't really understand what they've given, what they've sacrificed, the amount of love that they actually have. And I think, I think that we run the risk of not fully appreciating the gravity of what's being handed off to you. It's a big deal. And so we're going to look at five ways in which we can destroy Midtown Baptist Temple. It's a real possibility. And the very first thing is a failure of character. A failure of character. Moral failures happen in churches all the time. You know, when it happens in a leader's life, though, it generally has a greater fallout. It has a a demolishing effect when a leader falls. You know, it's hard to imagine, but if a leader in our ministry, just think about them, picture, I don't need to name names, just think about the leaders in our ministry. If they found themselves in explicit sin, drug or alcohol abuse, spousal abuse, sexual sin, financial sin, At a minimum, these types of things would cause a a sense of great loss and mourning in our church. Can't you just imagine what that would be like? How that would hurt us? How that would cut us? The mourning that would take place? The grief that we might feel? If a leader in our life was to, to, to fall into sin? I mean, at a minimum, it would set us back, wouldn't it? I mean, it would take us some time to get our, our, our footing back and to move forward again. At a minimum, it would set us back in a serious way. But at worst, these types of moral failure are the things that have the power to undo an entire church. You know, the church that, that planted Midtown Baptist Temple went through a crisis like this in the midst of what, what we would call, in retrospect, and a great movement of God. And, you know, I, I debated with myself about how honest to be about this story, but most of you probably know it by now. And there's some people in this room who lived through it. Deb lived through it. There was a time at which Kansas City Baptist Temple was monthly sending teams of 20 and 30 people all around the, the U.S. and the world to train other churches in discipleship. Before anyone was talking about discipleship, before it was a catchphrase, I mean, it's hard for you to imagine because as long as you've been in ministry, everybody talks about discipleship. Francis Chan talks about discipleship. All the talking heads use the word discipleship. But in 1990, there was not very many people talking about discipleship. It was a small group of people. And Kansas City Baptist Temple, in terms of the world, in terms of Christianity, sat at the heart of a discipleship movement that I've yet to see replicated. 
And it impacted people like Mark Trotter, people like Jeff Bartel, people like Joe McCaig. It impacted their lives, and we see God, what God had, has done in those men's lives as a result of something they learned about called discipleship. Changed their whole world. And at the midst of that movement, there was a leader that sat at the very center of that work that fell into depraved sin and caused harm to that ministry that really was never, ever recovered from. This is a real thing. And you know, the, the tighter a person is woven into the fabric of a church, the greater the impact they have when sin begins to pull that string. The more devoted you are to the work, the more implanted you are into the work, the greater the risk is. But that doesn't change the fact that churches can die the slow death of a thousand paper cuts a slow moral erosion, a culture of murmuring and gossip, showmanship and boasters, contentious and proud. These moral flaws have impact too. And listen, no one sets out to have a moral failure. There's not a one of us in this room who thinks to themselves, yeah, that's really what I want. I want to screw things up a bunch. I want to be depraved in my behavior. No one's thinking that, but it happens, and it happens for at least four reasons. And, and so I'm going I'm to address these four reasons right now. You might be able to think of more, but this is what I came up with. The four reasons why people often fall into moral failure. The very first thing is abandoning the word. Abandoning the word. I don't mean throwing away their Bibles. What I mean is letting them sit on the nightstand morning after morning. Letting your study of the Bible become superficial. And in time, your intimacy with Jesus Christ it just dries up. You stop all personal or, or meditative reading and your purposes, they begin to, to disappear. That's the way it works, you know. That's the way it works. And you can feel that at a small level. I know there's some of you here who, who still struggle with reading your Bible consistently and spending time with the Lord. I know that you struggle with that. And you know how that works too. When you have those seasons, at the end of that season, you feel really distant from the Lord and your purposes in ministry, they begin to fade a little bit. You're not quite as excited about ministry. You're not quite as excited about, about serving when you cover your eyes from the face of God, you convince yourself you no longer have anyone to be holy for. That's how it works. When you hide yourself from the face of the Lord, you do, you convince yourself in time that no one's watching and that there is no God that you need to, to stand righteous before. And that's how it works. That's what abandoning the word does. I kept picturing in my mind um, the Grinch. I kept thinking how tiny his heart was. Remember that? His heart just was like this tiny shriveled up raisin. Right? 
And that's what happens to the Christian heart when they abandon God's word. Another, another way that you might run into moral failure is you get isolated. You get isolated. If you let it, the busyness of life can distract you from the community of God. Ministry and leadership, it can actually distract you to the point that you put fellowship and accountability aside. You get siloed. You get focused on what you're doing. And this is real danger for leaders. At some point, you might even say to yourself, well, you don't need fellowship. You don't need accountability. You don't need to be responsible to anybody else. Your plate's full. And when you let that happen, you set yourself up for moral failure. Don't ever be too busy for accountability. The third thing is you stop confessing sin. You stop confessing sin. Over time, you, you can actually stop seeing your own sin. You know that, right? You can actually stop seeing your sin. Oh, now you see everyone else's sin. That's not a problem. Somehow you have the ability to think every time you hear a sermon, oh, that sermon was good for so-and-so. Oh, so-and-so, they really needed to hear that today. And we run the risk of not being vulnerable before the Lord. We run the risk of not having a habit of repentance. You can get too removed to be repentant, too preoccupied. And it puts you at risk. The last thing is entitlement. This is one that Sam always talks about. Is that you can convince yourself as a leader that, that people owe you something. And when you don't get your way, you can just make a way. Make a way to get whatever it is that you want, whatever you think you deserve. It's a feeling of justification. Like, don't they know what I've done? Don't they, don't they know how I've committed myself to ministry? Don't they know how I've served? Don't they see me? And then you run the risk. You run the risk of feeling like people owe you something. And then you end up taking it. Kai, we have to protect ourselves from immorality. And we need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Our holiness has to be important to us. Now listen to me. When I say holiness, I'm not talking about perfection. A lot of you guys, you know, you look around and you compare yourself to other people in the ministry. And you get real hard on yourself. No one's talking about perfection. No one expects perfection from you. What we're talking about is being bent towards holiness. Striving to be right with God. Striving to, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him without gaps or distractions. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted. 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. There's reasons, there's reasons to turn your laughter to mourning. It has a purpose. Turn your joy to heaviness and humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. Key point number one. We prevent moral failure by remaining humble before Christ and others. That's how we prevent moral failure. Are you guys with me? It's like, it's like super sober in here, which is what I anticipated. I expected this would be a very serious message. But usually I've told like two or three jokes by now. And I haven't really done that. This is not, a, this is not lighthearted. We're talking about destroying a church. Right? And, and what I'm saying to you is that if, if you don't keep yourself humble at the feet of Jesus Christ at the cross, if you don't keep yourself humble towards the people that, that you serve, the people you do ministry with, if you begin thinking you're better than someone else, you put everything at risk. I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about someone else. I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you and me as individuals. We have to remain humble. You know, I'm 38. I keep getting reminded of that. We played basketball at, at the discipleship conference. And the way that my feet felt, they felt like 38-year-old feet. I mean, I was hurting. And so, I, you know, the thing that I've learned about doing ministry for as long as I've done it is that I don't know anything. That's the one thing I keep learning over and over again, is that I actually don't know anything. Do you know how deep this thing is? Jeez. I mean, there's no amount of studying that'll get you there. But you just keep digging and digging. There's, there's no way. You can't plumb its depths. But I also look around, and I, and I look at people in, in ministry, and I learn from them. And seeing other people's holiness, it, it convicts me. And you're, you're, you're never too far along to learn. And so that, for that reason alone, stay humble. You don't have anything to prove. We're not in this to prove anything. We're in this to save souls. I don't need to get anything done. I don't need a position. I don't need a title. I don't, need to, I don't need to be a Bible study leader. I don't need to be a pastor. I don't need to be anything. I need to win souls. And if I don't have biblical integrity, I run the risk of putting the whole thing in danger. Second Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Another way that we can go about destroying our church is a failure in discipleship. A failure of discipleship. You know, our church does this thing called discipleship. You heard of that? Yeah. Except for it's more than just a thing. It's everything. It's everything. We devote time and energy in taking God's word and sharing it one-on-one with other people until they grow, until they get established. And it's literally everything we do. 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And many of us have come to accept the fact, uh, that fact that that's who we are, that's what Midtown Baptist Temple is, that's what Living Faith Lee Summit is, we're disciplers. But I want to warn you that true discipleship is an easy thing to take for granted. I mean, after all, Christians all over the world are talking about discipleship, but very few of them are actually doing it. And many churches that have a similar doctrine to us and a similar philosophy of discipleship, they talk about it the same way we do, they're not successful at it. People just like us, churches just like ours, would say all the same things, would use all the same rhetoric. They're not successful at it. No, it's possible that the failure of Midtown Baptist Temple could be a slow and steady de-emphasis in our discipleship. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen actually over and over again in churches just like ours. Discipleship's hard. It's hard. It requires tons of resources. Have you ever thought about that? Like all the manpower that we have in ministry that's devoted to discipleship, if we took that and put it on something else, man, imagine, imagine what other things we could do. I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm so bad at this. I don't, I don't even have the creativity to think about the things we could do. I mean, we could fundraise. We could go on like lots of like fake missionary trips, you know, that are actually just beach vacations. I mean, we could be busy with a lot of other things with the resources that we've given and devoted to just discipleship. That's, that's, a, that's a huge commitment from our congregation. And it comes with a lot of hurt. Have you ever noticed that? You can get betrayed in discipleship. You can invest something into someone, and at some point they decide they don't want it. And that cuts. Tears are shed. Mourning takes place. I mean, that's no picnic. I mean, we could be doing funner things than that. 
I mean, I mean, maybe you don't know much about church, but there are churches. There are churches not far from here that talk, that talk about discipleship, but really invest no resources into it. Discipleship is fragile that way. All it takes is one generation to de-emphasize the teaching of God's Word. All it takes is one generation to prioritize other ministry activity, to shift those resources somewhere else. All it takes is one generation to just teach lessons. To just teach this stuff. But that wouldn't be a transfer of life. That wouldn't require any heart. Wouldn't even require any modeling. You, would, you don't even have to show them with your life. It wouldn't require any accountability. We'd save ourselves a lot of heartache if we just taught this stuff. But that wouldn't be discipleship, would it? But I'm telling you, we are one generation away from just teaching this. And it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. You know, we often talk about the Philadelphian church, right? Yeah, you heard of that? The Philadelphian church age, a time in church history marked by great prosperity in terms of evangelism and the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. But what follows the Philadelphian age in Scripture? Laodicea. Laodicea, the, the time we actually live in, a time marked by faithlessness and spiritual lethargy. But how did that happen? You ever think about that? How is it that the most fiery and exciting church age butts up to the most worthless group of Christians that's ever existed in the last 2,000 years? The, the, how, does the, how does the most exciting church age precede the end of the stewardship? How does that happen? Because there was a failure to disciple there was a failure to transfer true discipleship, true teaching, true, true livelihood, true ministry. Discipleship was traded for seminaries. We won't get into that. I'm, I'm not going to go down that road. Just as no discipleship means no ministers, that's what that means. You know that, right? No discipleship means no ministers. It means that I'm the only one doing the work. That's what I get paid for. The rest of you are just coming to the trough, bellying up, enjoying a good old time. No discipleship means no ministers. But listen to me. Fake discipleship means fake ministry. Fake discipleship means fake ministry. Going through the motions. 
So key point number two. We perpetuate the way when we disciple. We perpetuate it. We take the teachings of Jesus Christ. We take the gospel. We take the New Testament teachings of Paul. The way. The way of Christ. We take those things and we transfer them into the life of another person. And when we do that properly, when we share that life and that transfer takes place, it perpetuates the gospel into another generation. And when we do that, we stay the, Christ of hand, uh, the, the hand of Christ one more generation. The stewardship's not done. We've not yet failed. We're carrying it on. We perpetuate it. We have to be true disciples. We run the risk of slowly killing our church. Number three, failure to prioritize the word. Failure to prioritize the word. And what I mean by this specifically is choosing to prioritize the Bible and its truth and its ways over other truths and other ways, some of which are very exciting. You know, people are very clever. They're very inventive. People have lots of great ideas about how ministry should be done. You could spend years of your life watching famous pastors on YouTube talk about how you should do ministry. It's amazing. It's never-ending. And they've got all kinds of great ideas. And leaders all over the world love to be your guru and tell you how ministry should be done. Well, what do, you know, why, why do they want that? What's their motivation? I don't know. The motivations are mixed. Many of them, they just want to fill their pockets. See, the danger is, if we start putting people's opinions over the Word of God, then we will lose our way. We're going to lose our identity and our ministry will, will lose its acute impact. It's, it's cutting impact. It'll lose it. The edge of our blade will grow dull and our precision will be slowly compromised. That's ultimately what we're talking about here is compromise. Small compromises over time. So if we want Midtown Baptist Temple to fail as a local church, trade the sure words of, uh, of, of, you know, the sure words of God, the certainty and infallible teachings of the word of God, trade those for indecisive, ever-changing cultural opinions. Trade them away. There's pastors and leaders all over the Midwest all over the U.S., all over the world that are doing that even right now. They're not studying their Bible for this Sunday. They're listening to the, to, the, to the guru online about how they can teach their church to have better lives. How to thrive, how to grow, how to grow a church, how to make church more fun, how, how to make it more exciting. How to get people more involved. 
10 ways to make church more fun. We're in danger of that. There are some people in this room that spend more time in commentaries and reading stuff about Christianity and about the Bible than actually reading the Bible. That's dangerous, y'all. I don't, have, I don't even have a problem with commentaries. I look at them often. But I approach every single one of them with a grain of salt. Because my authority is the Word of God. It is decisive. It is sharp. It is power. And if we want to build upon the foundation that's been handed down to us, then we should heed the following passages. 2 Timothy 1.13 Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul talking to a pastor, a leader, his disciple, Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.10 But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Verse 14 But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Even Timothy was in danger of forgetting that. 1 Timothy 1.18 This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good, a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. These warnings exist all through Paul's letters, by the way. To not turn away from the things that have been taught, we got to take that serious. Key point number three. We preserve our effectiveness when we elevate God's word. Okay, it goes back to the sword analogy, right? The, the more dull the sword gets, the less effective we'll be. You know, pilgrims require a compass. Don't they? Fishermen need a net. And soldiers require a sword. Without the word of God, we are nothing. We don't know who we're supposed to be. We're confused in our faith. I mean, there's Christians... There's Christians in our world that are just guessing at, at what to do with themselves. They're just guessing at it. Because they don't have the sureness of God's word. And the moment that the, the young adults in our church trade down is the moment we start to die. Number four, a failure to prioritize Jesus. A failure to prioritize Jesus can kill our church. Now, when, when I, you know, I, I know 
that the Word of God is the mind of Christ. I, I understand the equation there. I've done the math. But I want to speak specifically about Jesus and His personhood. Listen to me. If Jesus isn't number one, if He isn't the point of all of this, if we imply that anything is as great as Him, then we have effectively contaminated our church. If we fail to emphasize and magnify Christ, we fail to do the one thing that we were created for. Now this is particularly important as it concerns the significance of the gospel in, in contrast to the significance of our stuff. The stuff we think is important. The false gospels that we're all prone to, to preach and to teach. We have them. If we have anything Anything other than the gospel, any other message on our lips, anything other than Christ and Him crucified, anything, what version of the Bible you use, how we do discipleship, how our worship ministry functions, Whatever it is, whatever it is, we're in big, big trouble. If Christ isn't on that throne, we are in big trouble. If we emphasize a performance Christianity, we're in big trouble. If we, if we promote interpersonal competition in ministry, we're in big trouble. If we push political agendas, we're in big trouble. If we preach a social gospel, we're in trouble. If we overemphasize our programs, if we try and look the coolest, be the handsomest, or have the best online presence, all of these things have the potential to elevate us over Christ. All of these things commonly, commonly supplant and unseat Jesus from the throne that he died to sit upon. But you say to yourself, Brandon, we would never do that. We love Jesus. We would never undermine him. We would, we would never unseat him from his, thro his throne. Okay, Peter. I'm pretty sure he said the same thing. Let me just say this. It's way easier to, not, to deny Jesus Christ than any of us think. Just ask Jerusalem around A.D. 30. Matthew 21, 6, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought, brought the ass and the colt. And put on them their clothes. And they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. 
Others cut down branches from the trees and and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Six days pass. Six days. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all, all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. And then they released Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Six days. Exaltation to crucifixion. You tell me how hard it is to deny Jesus. The evidence suggests that people do it all the time. The fact is that churches do it all the time. So as a church, key point number four, we proclaim our allegiances when we elevate Christ over ourselves. We proclaim our allegiances when we elevate Christ over ourselves. Jesus has to be the one. You know, I shared this verse recently when discussing Paul's priorities. 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I have determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. I mean, I don't know if there's any greater proclamation of your allegiance than to desire that you mortify your own body just like him. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So so here's the question. Where is your affection? Where is your affection? Is it on things above? Because the moment, the moment we turn towards any other gospel, false, fake, faux 
spirituality. And, and we put it on par. We put it on par with the man Jesus Christ. Or we'll fail. Where is your affection? Number five. Midtown Baptist Temple will be destroyed if we fail to reach the next generation. If we, sh if we fail to share the good news, if we, if we fail to tell other people about Jesus Christ, If, if we fail to share what he's done in our lives and what he means to us, then we will slowly strangle the life out of our church. The stewardship of our dispensation is dependent on this very thing. Will we preach Christ and him crucified? Will we do that? Every one of us has failed the moment that the message of Jesus Christ is no longer on our lips. Our divine purpose is acquiesced the moment we stop inviting lost people to our Bible studies. I mean, I hope you're hearing me. The moment that we stop inviting lost people to our Bible studies is the moment we've relented the very cause that we were made for. The white flag is flown the moment we stop hitting the streets. The moment we think to ourselves, well, I'm too busy to do hit the streets this week. And busyness means like chilling at home. Pretending like you're going to do LFBI and then you never do. You wait till like Monday or Tuesday. We've relented. We've given up the instant that we choose to be silent. There's perhaps no better way to kill a church to, than to slowly strangle it. With our negligence. And with our hatred for lost souls. Because that's ultimately what it is. There is no greater act of hatred than for a believer to remain silent. I hope you understand that. There is no greater act of hatred than to have the answer for life and death To know the way for a lost soul to find redemption and to not share it with everyone you know. It is for this reason, key, key point number five, we propagate salvation when we fearlessly preach the gospel. We propagate we replicate, we, we multiply salvation from damnation, from hell, 
It's certain for every one of us. Romans 5.12 is incredibly clear. It's incredibly clear. Everyone you know, the moment they were born, were destined to be separated from God for eternity. And the ultimate punishment is a lake of fire. Because none of us deserve the holiness and the righteousness that comes with seeing Christ face to face. None of us deserve it. None of us. Not one person. And for that reason, we have no choice but to fearlessly preach the gospel everywhere we go. Otherwise, the blood's on your hands. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You want to kill our church? Be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Be ashamed to talk about it. Be afraid to talk about it. I love Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. His forgiveness is the answer for every woe. I mean, I know, I, okay, so there's people in this room who've never even been to Midtown Baptist Temple. You're a guest tonight. You're visiting. You're hanging out. You're chilling. Someone invited you. You don't even know what the heck I'm talking about. Right? But the reason that you're here is because you're supposed to hear what's supposed to be important to Christians. You're, you're here to discover what it means to be a believer, to know Jesus Christ, to know his salvation, to know the, the, the power over the grave. I, I don't know about you, but before I knew Jesus Christ, there, was, there were many, many nights where I sat in my bed and wondered what happened after I die. Anybody ever experienced that? Where you're not sure of your salvation, and you're laying there in your bed, and you don't, you don't actually know what's going to happen to you when you die? If you haven't experienced that, you're probably lying. See, Jesus Christ is unique. Unique among all of the, the other gods in the, in, in, the, in the religious pantheon. All the other re religious rulers and leaders. He's different. He's unique. And what makes him unique is the fact that he came and he lived a perfect life. 
And when he gave his life up, no man took it from him. He gave his life up. When he did that, three days later, he defeated death through resurrection. And it's by that resurrection that any person that puts their faith in him gains eternal life. They get resurrection too. And there is no other faith system that promises you that. We're talking about a gift that one receives that's extended to us by grace. We never deserved it. We ne- Remember, we're, we're weak and we're useless and we deserve destruction. And yet, in His grace and His love, He extended eternal life and all we have to do is receive it. I want to invite the worship team up. Listen, every person who calls out Christ finds him. Every person. And he promises to walk with them. Now, hear me for a second. Because I know how it works. And I, I, I speak with young people all the time. There's a lot of people in this room that are probably struggling with depression, anxiety, and fear as a lifestyle. It's a part of your lifestyle. And you've dealt with it for a real long time. But what if, what if I was to tell you that to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is to have a promise that the creator of the universe will walk with you through all of that. I mean, if deliverance from hell wasn't enough, but to have a divine friend, as the worship team leads us in worship, if you, if you aren't sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if, you, if you're not sure if you've ever repented of your sin and turned towards Jesus, as everyone stands to worship, I want to invite you to step out into the back hallway. And there's going to be leaders out there to meet with you and to talk with you. And so as we sing, just don't be afraid. I mean, do you hear in what I'm saying the significance of what this means? And if you, if you feel it in your heart and you recognize that there's something to this, I want to invite you to get up as we worship and to go into the hallway. And I want to send, extend a second invitation. And this invitation is for the people who do believe. For those of you in this room who know Christ as your Savior, and yet you have been unaware that you've been contributing to the failure of Midtown Baptist Temple. That there's things that you've discovered tonight about yourself that you have not, you have not ever dealt with. Ways in which your behavior, your actions, your faith undermine the baton being extended to you. See, listen to me. When I think about five to ten years from now, and I think about what we're supposed to have done by then, I imagine many of you having gone to help plant churches. That we've prayed over you. I I, I picture laying hands on you at Mission Focus. 
and you and a, a small group of believers going somewhere that seems completely irrational. And taking what you've learned, the DNA that you've been given, and starting again. That's what I imagine. And I imagine it over and over and over again. But there's many of you who've never actually thought about this for yourself. See, you've, you've approached all of this like a consumer. You've approached all of this like, ain't this a good time? But no, 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 listen to me. It's way more severe than that. It's, it's way more important than that. See, we've been given the responsibility to proclaim and propagate. And that's what we should be doing. And if in any way you recognize that you haven't been participating, you haven't been contributing to that work, you've been getting in the way, you've only played the consumer, then I want to ask that you get up and you repent of that and you go out into the hallway and you pray with someone. You want to know how to destroy a church? Do Christianity the way you think it should be done. And 20 years from now, there will not be a Midtown Baptist Temple. Does this make sense? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we enter into worship and we turn our affections toward you. God, would you help us to reckon areas of our life that we haven't properly dealt with, things in our, in our faith, in our walk, that just aren't, aren't right. We don't want to look like, like, frankly, Lord, we don't want to look like the Christians that we see everywhere else we go. We don't want to be cultural in our faith. We want to have faith. We don't want to play at, play at Christianity. We don't want to play at being Bible believers. We don't want to half-step. We want to go all in. We want to be used. We want to be a part of a movement. That's what we want. And if in any way, Lord, our lives hinder that as individuals, if there are areas of our life that have gone unchecked, if, if there's moral failure as a potential in our life, if trading away your word is a potential in our life, if other ideas and thoughts are getting in the way of, of the authority of Jesus Christ, Lord, please purge us of those things, those thoughts, those behaviors, those actions, that faithlessness. Purge us of that right now. Help us. Draw us into repentance. Draw us into confession. And Lord, if, there are any, if there's anyone, there's tons of people here tonight that I haven't even met yet. That I don't know. I just don't know where they came from. I don't know who invited them. I'm thankful that they're here. And Lord, I would pray that for those people, that they wouldn't hear about who you are and just ignore it. Help them to see that a life without you is a life without purpose. That a life without you is, is just an anxious and fearful and disappointing existence where every day is unsure and every day is indecisive. 
and all we have is our best efforts. And we all know in our conscience and in our heart that that's not good enough. Lord, help those people to recognize for the very first time that they need you. Help us, help us to do church, to be church. Help us to be the bride of Christ that you deserve. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.